0: You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Chad Melville. Head wine grower at Melville Winery. Enjoy my conversation with Chad. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Well, it's great having you here. So there's going to be a lot to get into. We're going to go through the Melville wines. We're going to talk about Santa Rita Hills. There, you know, there's so much to uh, to get into. But first, let's go back to your background and how you kind of came to work full-time in wine? And and we can kind of start back with the history of your dad and kind of go way back.
1: Of course. So we, you know, my family's been growing wine for over 35 years now. And um, we got started in Calistoga, so northern Napa Valley, um, technically in Sonoma, so um, right there in Knights Valley. we bought a existing vineyard um, that was planted to um, a little bit to Cabernet, but also to Napa Gamay. It's funny because it was like the first thing that we did when we bought that was ripped out the game, and now Gamay is so like hot and hip. Um, but the the reality was Gamay was not commanding a very high price, which essentially put that farmer you know in trouble financially, which is why he put it on the market. So. Um, My dad bought it, he changed it around, planted it to Merlot, um, took all the Gamay and converted that to Merlot. And then we had some Chardonnay on there as well. But the important thing is that my dad, you know, really took it seriously and went back to school, took some classes um, at Davis and then hired a vineyard manager by the name of uh, Paul VanderShelley, who's no longer with us, but he was instrumental in kind of guiding my dad down this path. Of wine growing, put a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of time into kind of rehabilitating the vineyard, but at the same time, you know we got to remember that um, viticulture was really kind of taking off at the time and um, and uh, and so the, the timing was great you know to kind of you know the concept of cover cropping was kind of brand new, um, certainly to my dad but um, Fairly new to the industry, so the the this effort that went into um, kind of you know putting more um, investment in your land really paid off for my dad because he started to to elevate the quality of his fruit, which meant he was then elevating the price in which he sold it, and also elevating you know into the programs of reserve for places like Dry Creek Vineyards, Chateau Saint-Jean, and even Chateau Montalena bought some fruit too back in the day. That really kind of, you know, turned my dad on to this idea, you know, his belief, his theory, you know, and and uh, it was it was Pinot Noir that kind of always haunted him and, in a good way. And um, knowing that you can't really grow successful Pinot Noir up in, in such a hot and cold climate, um, he kind of had in the back of his head this this search for a suitable place. Even, even though he wasn't actively searching, but he was, you know, coming across more and more articles about this area where we are now. And then every once in a while, he would taste some wines. But it wasn't until you know this one moment he had in like '93, where he was at a restaurant. Actually, at the Little Nell in uh, Aspen, Colorado, which is uh, a famous um, restaurant for its food and wine program, and it was actually Bobby Stuckey, who who is a good friend and who is based in Boulder, Colorado, as a master sommelier. Bobby was the the sommelier that night, and basically told my dad that if he wanted something by the glass, it was Santa Barbara County night, and he he had to choose from something in that category, and. Um, and my dad was like, all right, he's in. And next thing you know, he's got a, a glass of Auban Clement, um, Sanford Benedict Pinot Noir in his hand, and he was blown away. And uh, that's really kind of fitting for a couple of reasons, because Jim Clendenin just passed away five days ago. Um, and it really hit me hard uh, for many reasons. But also, you know, the story kind of came to the surface in my mind about how impactful Jim Clendenin was in many ways, and, and certainly in this way. You know, really was what kind of, you know, uh, really kind of turned my dad, <clears throat> Tad's attention into this area. At the time, the area was just called Sanitas Valley, and at the time, my dad wasn't really familiar with the west side of the 101 highway that runs right through the heart of the Sanitas Valley. And Bobby Stucky said, "It's you know, this this fruit is coming from um, this." Little area right outside of this town called Buelton, and my dad was like, "No way, you know, that's where I know the area. You know, it's where he gets his gas, whatever." And um, so next time my dad was in the area, he he stopped and and made more time to go taste around and look at you know look at the land, look at how close it was to the ocean, check out the weather. I mean, do the research. And um, and so he was really impressed. And and my dad has been always he's always been really good at. At, at finding potential, I mean, his his core business that he spent, you know, from whatever 19 years old, even until today, and he's 81 now, has been um, the stock market. Independently, but nonetheless, the mindset of someone who's in the stock market, you're always forecasting. You're always you're always doing your research, and and what makes sense to you, you continue to kind of follow and. And when you follow the stock market or a certain company, you're you're always using projections. And so my dad's always been really good at that. And and in the sense of land, he was like, wow, this area has got a ton of potential, and the land was affordable. And then equally important, you know, the land was raw, so there was nothing planted here. And so that was <clears throat> that was all really really integral in terms of um, having my dad kind of jump in. Sooner and later, I guess maybe you know, seven years later, he sold everything up north. Um, and then that's kind of when we started uh, this vineyard winery operation. Bought the land in 96. Started planting with my brother in 97. <clears throat> continued in 98. And then it was about 2001 when my dad sold uh, <clears throat> the property up in Calistoga.
0: Wow, yeah, that's quite a journey. And what was going on in your life during during that time when he was uh, growing the grapes and selling the fruit in Calistoga and then transitioning to in 96 when he bought the property. Were you at what point did you start kind of getting interested in wine? <laughs> totally. So, I mean, when we had that property in Calistoga, I was, you know, in the early years of high
1: school, so uh-huh. uh, I was excited about it because, you know, it. we had ATVs and we had, you know, guns mm-hmm. to shoot and we had yeah. <laughs> all this exploring to do. I, I had zero interest in wine. I mean, I, I say that, you know, flippantly, but like I was lucky because I grew up with, you know, wine on the table and not because I liked it, but I always thought it was interesting, you know, like that you can transform this fruit into this wine that we all sit around and like really appreciate. I didn't like wine. I mean, I have two little kids that are that age right now, you know, 14 and 16. And wine to them is is sour and bitter. And that's that's what it is to a palate that's so young, right? And so to me, you know, there was very little interest in the actual finished product other than I found that it was intriguing, that it smelled different and that it tasted different. But again, my attention was pointed towards the fun part, right, which was motorcycle and guns. And once I got a little bit older, then it was beer. Um, my dad works really hard. You know, he's an old school. He comes from that old school. Like, his dad was military. So my dad knows discipline. My dad knows hard work. My dad knows, you know, no failure, right? So it was, it was really um, quite interesting to be a part of the whole thing um, I would go out and help him prune you know in the winter time and I'd go for a couple hours and I'd be like okay I'm done and he'd be like all right you know see ya but um he would stay out there or at harvest time you know where it's it's sticky and hot and dirty and you know our job was to get all the fruit off the vines and get it to the winery as soon as possible so we're working hard and at the end of the day I was just beat and I was just like wow I can't believe you know you do this like for a living like this is just like it's hardcore it's it's authentic it's genuine it's it's all these great things that I love now but at the time again think about being you know sophomore freshman in high school you're like this kind of sucks but um, nonetheless I was exposed and so um, when I fast forward through like where I am today, um, I was really lucky to have that exposure and to understand all the efforts. However, when I went to school, I went to school for something totally different because I wanted to do something different. And, um, and then sure enough, a couple years out of school, um, that's when my dad bought this land here, uh, raw land. I came knocking on his door and said, "Hey, I would really love to come do this." And his response was, "You know, I thought you didn't like this." He's, and his other response was, "Why would I? Why would I hire you? If you don't have any experience." So it was kind of his way of telling me, "You know, like I told you so." And um, and he didn't hire me. You know, so I went out and got a job working at Santa Barbara Winery. This was in '97. Um, I met Greg Brewer then. Um, and this other uh, guy named uh, Graham Totomer, who has a label called Totomer here locally, specializes in Riesling, Pinot Noir, and Gruner. Anyways, the three of us were working for um, Bruce McGuire, who's still the head winemaker at Santa Barbara Winery, super smart guy, um, super low key. But the three of us were trained under Bruce Greg had been there for maybe four or five years before I got there. Um, I spent a year with Santa Barbara Winery, which was great because it gave me exposure to the tasting room, the vineyard, and the cellar. And that was kind of the deal for me. It was like, hey, I need experience. What can I, you know, I looked around and I found this job because Bruce offered it to me uh, as a well-rounded position. He gave me basically, you know, three months in the tasting room, three months in the cellar and, um, you know, six months in the vineyard. And so I was super excited. And then after that, I came then to my dad and just said, all right, you know, I'm ready. Um, I'm a hard worker. I'm smart. I can figure it out. And, uh, my dad's like, all right, you're in. And, um, I worked for minimum wage and lived in the trailer in the back of the property and drove the vineyard pickup truck. So, Um, It was a pretty big life change for me, Um, but nonetheless, a really important one. I knew at that moment in time that I'd be doing this the rest of my life, and that was a really good feeling to me because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life when I was 24, 23, 25 years old in that range. So um, it didn't make a lot of sense on paper in, in the sense that I wasn't making very much money, but... It made a lot of sense to my heart. I just knew this is my this was my future. And that if I put all this effort, I'm very passionate, and I have a lot of energy. And if I put all this into this something that I love, I just knew that it was my future. It makes me happy. And um, and to be honest, I've been doing this for 25 years now, and I've never looked back. You know, I'm still hungry. I'm still anxious to get to work in the morning. I'm still fascinated by uh, this process and also I'm still really appreciative of my opportunities. You know, I feel like I'm really lucky to have this um opportunity. I've taken advantage of it, there's no doubt, but but not everyone gets this opportunity and and I feel super lucky and grateful to have it.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned doing 3 months, 3 months, 3 months and then maybe 6 months in the vineyard. So when you were working in the tasting room and then working in the cellar and then out in the vineyard, kind of doing a mix of any, everything, did you at that point, did you kind of gravitate towards one thing like, OK, I, I really like working in the vineyard or maybe it was the cellar a mix of both. And then I know you went back to business school, so maybe we can talk about like at that point, were you thinking like, OK, I need to kind of think about the business side of wine, too, in order to actually kind of sell the wine into a business plan and those type of things.
1: Yeah. I mean, business school was before that. So oh, after okay. I graduated. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think that getting exposed to the different facets of the wine business, you know, uh, after business school was really, um, was instrumental for me because um, this is ultimately a business, right? I mean, we could talk about all the growing and the making and how romantic all this stuff is, blah, blah, blah. But the re- the reality is this is a business. And if we don't make money, then I don't have a job, right? So um, having that background going into this um, was really important. Having that experience of the tasting room was really important. Um, what I love about the business or, you know, about what I do is is definitely by far it's the growing side it's the farming it's the connection to mother nature it's that that kind of you know different mindset of um releasing power right and control mother nature is not control outside i don't i don't control the wind you know or the temperatures or the fog or you know this ancient marine soil i get to work with all of it but i don't control any of it and and so to me, that's where the magic is. That's that's the most fascinating part out of this whole project. I love it. I also love the winemaking. You know, I love the hard work. I love the early mornings and the camaraderie. And I love the team atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, I do do still a lot of sales. And uh, I was just in New York last week for the week. Um, I was one of the the first, uh, I was the first actually winemaker in New York for this distributorship that I'm with in, you know, since COVID, right? So um, it was early, but nonetheless, um, I do a lot of kind of street work, if you will. Um, And then, you know, I'm I'm constantly um, doing sales, you know, just in general here at the winery, walk outside, you know, greet a special guest, whatever. I mean, it's all part of it, right? But um, there's there's no doubt that the, the my love, my passion is is in the vineyard um, for sure, number one. But it's important. I guess my point is, it's important to be well rounded. It's important to know all the different facets that make this whole machine click. We're unique, in the sense we're, we're not we're not completely unique, but we're we're in a very small kind of group. Of wineries that are that are a state, right? Where we own our own land and we do all of our own farming. And and so we do have um that advantage. Um, we only work with our own fruit. So we 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 really take a lot of pride in the um in the growing of this wine. And and so uh, you know, it's just it's a little different mentality. I mean, I think that. I think that you know, Ryan, or the research that you've done, you know we're, we're, we come at this um, in a slightly different angle. It's not a typical California winery that we have. We, we use this old world mentality of neutral wood and stem inclusion and wine growing, but yet we're still using you know beautiful new world California cold climate fruit. And so we kind of have this little niche in the market, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to summarize it. That's exactly what I was kind of uh, learning when I was digging through all of the research reports or some YouTube videos out there. There's a lot of great stuff on your website, which we're going to um, also link in the show notes here melvillewinery.com um, so people can go check out the the beautiful website you have there's a lot of really cool photos and um, get access to all the wines but i think that's a great transition into just talking about the land itself and the area i've been up to uh, santa barbara county as a whole santa rita hills happy canyon kind of explored some different parts up there it's such a beautiful area for people who are in los angeles it's you know it could be a quick weekend trip um it's it's such a great little uh you know kind of hidden gem in the world that as you mentioned your dad discovered so many years ago that had all this potential kind of such a really forward looking um you know way of thinking about the world that he had as you mentioned so i think Talking about the area as in a as a whole, what makes it special, and then we can drill down into your winemaking style. And as you mentioned, working only with your fruit, being estate grown, and kind of all those specifics that make you guys special.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know you've had other people on this that um, that are from Santa Rita Hills, um, but yeah, the the magic of this area <clears throat> is um, a couple things. One is the mountain range that runs east to west. It's a transverse mountain range and it runs straight to the cold Pacific Ocean. And so it it kind of acts as like a, excuse me, a corridor or a funnel if you will. Um, And this cold Pacific Ocean current, it's called the Humboldt Current, it actually starts in Japan, goes up to Alaska, then all the way down the coast. There's also a deep shelf right off of the the coast where we are, so the upwelling of the water is just consistently cold. Um, so you have this ocean temperature that ranges you know from whatever, fifty degrees to fifty six degrees um, year round, essentially. And you have all this air that's sitting on top of the ocean. And so you got cold air, whether that be in the form of you know fog or or just, you know, the wind that gets brought in. Um, what's equally important is that to the east of us, about 90 miles, so not very far away, it's hard to get to, but as the crow flies, it's only 90 miles to the east of us directly is the is the Mojave uh, Desert, so Death Valley is right there, which is uh, the hottest place in North America, and, and so if you know weather and, um, and you understand how it works, but... Obviously, when the land heats up, um, it rises. And the hotter it is, the faster it rises. When heat rises that fast, it it pulls in. It pulls in from where it's coolest. And so that's what produces this wind that we have. I mean, yesterday outside at about 2, 2 2.30, 3 o'clock, it was 25 knots, basically 25 miles an hour, which is crazy, right? That was pretty extreme. But... It's typical for us to get, you know, we have windy, cold spring here. Um, Now, when summer comes around, we still have wind, um, but not quite as aggressive. And the temperatures do go up a little bit. But we're still talking about summertime is about, you know, 72, 74 degrees. um, And it's... uh, it's, it's always sunny. So you have this, what we call refrigerated sunlight. So it's cold, it's a little windy, but it's always sunny. And that's really kind of the magic of this area. Um, And it's all because of the way the mountain range runs. And it's all because of this cold Pacific Ocean. When most people think of California, you know, that don't live in California, they think of you know, sunny palm trees, you know, these awesome beaches, skateboarding, bikinis, whatever, right? You think of this cool, like, California, like, sunny, fun time. And that is true. But that's to the south of us. You know, that's, that's LA and San Diego and Laguna Beach. It's not, it's not the central coast. And it's not the northern part of California, either. So, um it's a good reminder that where we are it's just different and it's all because of that cold pacific ocean and the mountain range that runs east to west
0: yeah that's that's a great overview and um you know sometimes i think about the diurnal shift which is how uh cold it gets at night and how hot it gets during the day and the the effect on the grapes i've had some other people talk through that and the the importance and the differences there. Um, I was watching a video I think it was YouTube I can link it in the show notes of you uh, so in the early days you were digging out in the uh, vineyard and you were um, I think it was part of the Sandy's block which we can talk about and you were digging and digging and there was sand and then you ended up digging like six feet down and then it was still all sand and you were talking about You know, there can be different layers to the soil types that just because there's sand, uh, when you kind of start digging, it doesn't mean like when you go further down, it's going to be all the same. Maybe you could, uh, we can get into the different soil types and kind of the terrain um, before we start going into the winemaking uh, a little bit in more detail. Yeah, I mean, there's a
1: lot of sand here, ancient marine soil, so well-drained, low-nutrient. Uh, sandy loam. We have some pockets that are a little bit more clay, bottea clay. And then we have some pockets like sandies that are just really sandy. Um, so uh, we've got 120 acres planted and, um, you know, pretty big variety of different soil types here. Um, it's all kind of gradually sloped. We do have some hillsides some terraced as well. Um, we have 17 different clones of Pinot, eight different clones of Syrah, seven different clones of Chardonnay. So we, and then 120 acres, we have it um, just the the this tremendous amount of diversity in the vineyard, and that's what really kind of makes this whole place tick because we we treat everything a little bit differently, um, both in the vineyard uh, especially, and then a little bit differently in the cellar. Um, but the magic is outside, and and uh, and that's really what we are trying to harness um, inside. Is to figure out what what each of these blocks and each of these clones and soil types is trying to say, and and capture that as purely as possible to to bring to you know through the process of winemaking and <clears throat> really deliver that in the bottle and. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, say that they, the wine is made outside, blah, blah, blah. And, and then, you know, things change in the cellar through kind of manipulation, new oak usage, whatever. It's all good. I mean, listen, there's lots of ways to do this. And I'm not saying that there's one way better than the other. I will say though, that our way is something that we really believe in and, um, and that is to capture this beauty that Mother Nature has provided outside and bring it to the bottle as purely as possible. So in other words, we're not using any new wood at all. We're only using old oak. So it's all in oak, except for um, a couple wines that we do in stainless, but it's all French oak. People always ask well, what kind, and the answer is it doesn't matter. It's so old, it doesn't matter. But it is all French. It's 15 to 25 years old. Um, So we're not giving the wine any oak aroma, flavor, or texture by design. Think about oak as being an ingredient, right? New oak adds flavor, it adds aromatics, it adds structure, texture, you know? And it's an ingredient that I don't want in our wine. And so it's really kind of rare, to be honest, uh, as you know, Ryan, to come across wines that are made in California that are completely dedicated to neutral wood. Almost all California red wine has got some form of new oak in it in some way or other. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm anti new oak. I have plenty of wines in my own personal cellar that have new oak. It's just for us here and what we're doing and what we're trying to do is uh, that new oak ingredient just doesn't play a role. Um, we're also big on stem inclusion for uh, the Reds, the Pinots and Syrahs. I don't I don't go below 40% whole cluster and it goes up to 100%. So the, the whole cluster is a really big part of the wine style, but it's also really big part of the vineyard. And so it makes sense that it would be part of the wine style. We're out there actively farming to get our stems ripe. Um, not everything gets ripe, but that's okay. We destem that those sections, but the sections that do get ripe for stems you know, we embrace them. It's part of the vineyard. It's part of the vintage. It's part of the varietal. And that's what's providing us the savoriness in the, in the aromatics. It's providing structure in the wine. So it's a really important part of the wine. And then um, as far as the whites go, you know, which is just Chardonnay, but we make a couple different ones. Um, You know, the Chardonnay um, here in Santa Rita Hills is really unique because you have this ability to get ripe flavors without having excessive alcohol. And especially when you get vines that are kind of, I've learned that the kind of vines that are our age here, because I planted these vineyards with my brother and I've watched this develop in front of my own face, um, that you get uh, with older vines, you get this more maturity. So you have this ability to capture ripe aroma, ripe flavor, right? ripe acid, but yet before the presence of uh, high potential alcohol. So in either case, <clears throat> where all the wines are aged on the lees in barrel without any SO2 the entire time that it's in barrel. So that's aggressive as well. So I look at the lees as part of, you know, one of the tools that I, I can use here, right? Um, lees contact is is really, I think, a large part of giving the wine its its soul, and um, and so um, you got to make sure the lees are are clean and good. And obviously, um, well, I guess it's not obvious, but one of our goals, right, of delivering the winery clean, pristine, high quality fruit, is also that those that high quality fruit turns into high quality leaves, and so that's a huge benefit. Um, so everything makes sense. I mean, honestly. Whenever you think about what we're doing here at Melville, I think I think it all can be attributed back to the vineyard. You know, every every question that's asked, you know, every answer that's delivered, it all goes back to the vineyard, you know, and that's that's really what we're doing here. I mean, we're honestly we're more of a wine farming or wine growing company that just happens to make wine. Right. So it, it's so important for us, you know, that it's all about the vineyard and farming. And then um, and then the winemaking is kind of secondary.
0: Yeah. And you've talked in the past about organic farming and how it's important to you. What was that transition like from when you the property was first purchased till now and kind of what what went through that, that process to get to to where you are now to be able to do organic farming, um, you know, cover crops. Sometimes I hear about the, 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 boxes for the owls and like all these different things. Some wineries bring in, um, uh, was it goats or, or not goats, sheep to, uh, to, to start eating or munching on the, the, um, the, the land. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, goats
1: are, yeah. I think that, you know, when we first started, um, when you plant a brand new vineyard, you're dealing with a lot of um, you, you're in kind of invading, right? You're you're converting this yeah. land that's been natural for however many years, and you're converting it to a vineyard. You know, it's it's a bit aggressive if you think about it that way, but um, if you do it with respect, you know, I believe that it's it's a it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, in the beginning, though, you're dealing with a lot of the native weeds that are here. And so we did use some herbicide. We did use um, some things to, you know, cut back on the the weeds that were here, especially when you've got baby vines and they're competing with these weeds. you got to do something. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, listen, this was back in 97, right? And what mm-hmm. I know today is a lot more than I knew back then. Um, but you know, it wasn't too long until we uh, abandoned all that usage because we could see what was happening. I mean, when you kill a weed with herbicide, it goes all the way down to its roots. And when you're killing the roots, then that means you're you're invading this precious topsoil with like with death, you know, with a chemical. And I don't care what anyone says, but that can't be good, you know. And so we got away from that stuff really quickly. I think it was maybe two years or three years later um, and we just took on this whole other approach of um, instead of using stuff to kill we, we we took on this other approach of well, let's just make everything so healthy <clears throat> that it can defend itself so planting a cover crop was a form of not only you know um, inputting a lot of nutrients into the soil but it was also a form of abating weeds by virtue of planting a plant you know a mixture of plants to be honest that would then overtake you know the weeds so competing with the weeds the weeds didn't have a chance um, now you still will have weeds in the rows or in the berm like underneath the vines because the cover crop doesn't go the whole distance of the floor it goes 75 percent of the surface area of the floor of the vineyard that other 25 percent is the actual percentage that's underneath the vine or the berm is what it's called. So then we got this, um, this machine called a Clemens. It's an in-row tiller. And so its attachment is on the back of the tractor and we go through and it basically is like a, it's like a knife, not, not like a kitchen knife, but it's a, it's a blade that um, is way duller than a knife, but just in the farming terms, it's called a knife. It sits underneath the soil about one or two inches and um, it cuts everything in its path. And then when it gets to a vine, it, it re, uh, retracts back to the tractor. And then when it gets past the vine, it comes back out. So you're essentially getting underneath the surface of any weeds that are in the row, right? But the important thing here is you're not using chemicals or herbicides. So we figured out a way early on to, to keep the weed control down or managed um, without having to use any of this stuff. Now, the results are you know, they're tremendous. And, um, and it's just, it's so, it's so much fun to see, you know, the vineyard kind of be alive and respond to your inputs the way that you anticipate they will. And we, and I'm talking about everything, you know, from the irrigation that we use to the nutrients that we use both foliarly and through the drip system, and then the nutrients that we use during wintertime to broadcast. Um, but, um, it's really quite rewarding, I think, you know, to know that you're doing it the right way, you're doing it the way that mother nature would approve of, and you get to see the results in both the form of the vines and the fruit outside, but then also equally important in the wine quality as well.
0: Yeah. And the one thing we didn't cover, I usually ask people about is picking decision, which kind of ties into this and you being, you know, on the property, all estate grown, I think, you know, maybe there's even an advantage there of you being so in touch with the land and and being there and being able to kind of see things every day and even hour by hour. Uh, um, And so, you know, how do you think about picking decision and what's your philosophy there?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, the 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 I guess one of the advantages, um, and it's a big one, of being a state and owning your own land, um, doing your own farming, is that um, uh, the involvement of the whole entire process, right? So from you know pruning to shoot thinning, to leafing, to canopy management, irrigation, nutrients, all that stuff is really, really important. Now, is any any farming, um, but espe- especially, you know, wine growing, and especially premium wine growing, um, there's a lot of people that have knowledge about it. There's a lot of people that, you know, have the experience. Um, and there's a lot most people have the tools, right? So the equipment, um, the, the infrastructure. But what's really, really important that I think a lot of people miss out on kind of emphasizing is the timing in which you apply the knowledge and the tools to the farming process. In other words, Mother Nature is really cooperative in so many ways. She tells us when and when to do stuff. And if you pay attention to that, then you will be successful with your farming practices. In other words, you can't just apply something because you have time or because um, you'll apply it today because tomorrow's Sunday and you don't want to come to work on Sunday. Now, listen, I don't work on Sunday, so I don't want to give you that impression. But I'm just saying that that the timing in which you do things is super important. Right. And so she gives us these signals and it's just observing it's being aware you know and so when it does come time to harvest um you know to me so much of it has already been done you know because we've worked with the vines and worked with the fruit and worked with all these different blocks and soils and you know clones to the time harvest comes i'm basically like three quarters like 75 percent done really I know it sounds crazy. Maybe it's not that high. Of Let's just call it 50% done, 50% finished with the wine making by the time the fruit lands on the crush pad. So that other 50% is just converting the sugar into alcohol and getting it cleanly to barrel. Um, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of decisions that go into that. I don't mean to talk about that lightly, but my point is that. That so much of it is already done because of all the farming, right? That's why I really emphasize wine growing, right? It's all about getting this high quality raw ingredients, and then and then just letting it do its thing in the cellar. Um, that may sound reckless, but keep in mind, I've been working with this fruit, you know, for twenty four years now, and um, it's not like I start all over from zero every year. I already know which, which direction. That this fruit is pointed in, so I just guide it down that direction. In other words, it's not like you know, um, you know, starting from scratch. I should say, when it comes time to um, decide where in the vineyard we're harvesting, you know, there's a rhythm again. Mother Nature gives us these signals. So if if you have a block that always has bud break first then that's typically going to um, flower first. It's typically going to go through verasion first. And then it's typically going to be ripening up and picked first, right? Conversely, you know, take the same thing, but the last thing to bud break will be the last thing to flower, will be the last thing to go through verasion, and the last thing to be picked. So that's general if you think about it, you know, the, the the vineyard has a rhythm to it, right? And the rhythm has been established. And so I'm not looking at block, um, you know, our block C of Pinot Noir here um, in terms of making a decision on harvest until I'm finished with Sandy's block because that's how it always is, right? So it's not like I'm running around crazy at harvest time trying to figure out what to pick next because – I'm tuned in to the rhythm of the vineyard. Now, having said that, there's some blocks that happen to, and this is kind of comes with time and experience. There's some blocks that just do better in terms of um, the way they ripen stems or they get their flavor development. Some blocks do better with less ripeness and some blocks do better with a little bit more ripeness. So in between that kind of range, yes, there that comes, you know, uh, with some experience in, in determining, um, you know, when to pick or when not to pick. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, while you're going through that, I just thought of something about, you know, you've been working with this land, I think you said, was it 24, 25 years? Almost 20, coming up to 25 years, maybe. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: you know, how have you seen the temperatures change or, or or things like that with the environment I mean there, there's been a lot of talk about global warming and obviously we California has dealt with fires and a lot of issues but um, is that something that you've seen kind of a trend or you know, like worrisome or what's your thoughts on that overall I mean that that's a long time to be working with with that plot of land like you mentioned I mean you must know it so so well
1: yeah I mean global warming, our climate change um, is definitely, uh, you know, happening. Um, we see it in less of the form of extreme high or low temperatures. Although, uh-huh. you know, we do we do get a little heat, you know, usually towards the um, in the fall time through these Santa Ana conditions. But um, but that we've always kind of had that. I think that the the real the real big change for us here is what we see is this kind of is the rainfall patterns. You know, we we have we we tend to kind of we don't get a lot of rain. Period. But what's happening is um, we're we're seeing more drought conditions, and then we see more kind of heavy rain conditions. We haven't seen really heavy rain in, in quite some time, maybe twelve years now. But um, but nonetheless, I think that's where we see the climate change. Now, that's mostly because we're so close to the Pacific Ocean, right? If you go east of us, you know, 10 miles where Ballard Canyon is or even further east where Happy Canyon is, um, I think that's where you start to see more of the effects of the, the temperature change, you know, hot, higher highs, lower lows. But because we're so close to the ocean, keep in mind, it's that ocean that's regulating our temperatures where, where we are. Um, it's not quite as dramatic and I'm not, I'm not taking it to the extreme of like looking for land to purchase like up in Canada because (laughs) it's, you know, I mean, I hear stories like that, whatever, and I'm not changing my varietals here either. So it's not quite as extreme, um, in terms of temperature, uh, fluctuation, but it is, I think in terms of rain or lack of rain.
0: Yeah. So thanks for, thanks for that. That, that makes a lot of sense actually. Um, let's get into the wines here. So, a uh, couple that I tasted through 2019 estate Pinot Noir, which we'll talk about first, and then the estate uh, Chardonnay. Um, so this Pinot, you know, what's really struck me about it is, as you mentioned, being able to really taste the land and not have the influence of new oak um, and just kind of the purity, where I, I really felt like I was I was tasting. You know that Pacific Toar and that you know specific varietal and that specific you know plot of land, which was really unique and something that I can't say I've I've had a lot of experiences doing with other wineries. Um, so that's just one thing that struck me about it, just kind of right off the bat. But I'll let you kind of get into it here.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, keep in mind you're tasting wine now without any new oak. Mm-hmm. So that in itself, a red wine, specifically Pinot Noir from California, that in itself is unique and different, right? Because you, we are all trained in our noses and our tasting and our palate to kind of expect, um, you know, those flavors of like vanilla and smoky toast and you know beautiful spicy aromatics, um, which they are. They're beautiful, right? But what you're getting in my wine, right, is you're taking kind of that distraction, if you will, out of the equation. What you're getting in my wine is are these savory notes of, of black tea and, um, you know, dried sage. You're getting kind of a a soy umami character, like a nori oceanic um, saltiness. You're getting fruit of cranberry, pomegranate, and Um, even like, you know, being cherry, there's some blood orange in there too, right? So you're getting this really unique set of aromas that are derived directly from the vineyard. There's nothing in there that's been created or added through the cellar. You know, the stems are working with the fruit to come together to give us this unique savory sweet combination now not sweet as in sugar obviously because the wine is dry but sweet as in fruit think about ripe pomegranate right and and then you have this dried herb coming together it's really unique it's different um put it in your mouth and you get this bright fresh acidity which is um you know, a hallmark of Pinot Noir because it's grown in a cold climate, you're going to have that fresh acidity. Now, Pinot Noir is not known to be overtly tannic. It's not big and not bold for, for most um, producers. But um, but in this case, it, it does have some assertive, you know, grip to it, right? And again, that's coming from the stem inclusion. It's also coming from seed and skin tannin as well, of course, all red wine, is going to have that. But but in this case, most of the tannin is derived from stem. So it's it's unique in that sense, right? Our our palettes aren't used to having Pinot Noir that is so savory driven and perhaps um, less fruit driven and perhaps without that kind of sappy oakiness that comes with it. But then also we're not used to it on the palate, we're, we're deriving most of the tannin from stems as well, so it is really unique. You know, the ironic thing is, it's exactly you know straight 100% from the vineyard, so it shouldn't be that unique, right? If we always talk about wine being grown and wine being made outside, well, there it is. It's right there in front of your glass or in your glass.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the that's one of the things that's amazing about wine is being able to taste all those different flavor profiles and aromas on the nose of just coming out from that fruit and those, uh, those grapes. I think that's just one of the magical things about wine. Um, the, the notes that you mentioned, I definitely was able to pick up some of those. Sometimes it helps for me to be able to kind of taste a wine, think about the uh the different aromas on the nose and the, and the flavor profiles and then sometimes i'll go back to the to the tasting notes or the text sheet um again you guys have some great stuff on your website which we'll have linked in the show notes here but then when i kind of read through some of those it even get reminds me or kind of gives me some ideas like oh yeah i, I definitely did kind of taste that like you mentioned the blood orange that's something that didn't come to mind to me right away but after you mentioned it i was like oh yeah i definitely kind of did taste that Kind of yeah. flavor note the cranberries and then some of the other stuff I did definitely pick up, um, but just a helpful tip for for new people out there uh, trying to taste through some of this stuff. Sometimes it can be intimidating, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so moving on to the Chardonnay here, um, beautiful expression. I mean, I, th- I know I think I've I've heard you say this that it's more of a in the style of a Chablis, um, and so you know back in i guess maybe the early or mid all through the 90s we had this explosion of kind of uh wines with a lot of big new oak and kind of the uh i guess it's the the, the chardonnays that are um sometimes people make fun of or kind of the the cliche is the word i'm looking for the ones would like to hit you over the head with oak but this is not that at all. This is just such a beautiful exp- expression, of the, the varietal. So um, why don't we get into this one here?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, again, you know, when you talk about this cold climate and these unique growing conditions that we have here, um, you know, we're really pushing the vineyard. The vines aren't super happy, right? Because it's cold, it's windy. The soils are depleted and well-drained. and and then we pack the vines in. You know, We planted the vineyard to 2,000 vines per acre. So there's lots of competition for the very little amount of nutrients and moisture that is provided. So ultimately, you know, you're making vines work really hard, and they produce a small amount of really intense fruit. And that's for, that's for any varietal. Um, but when we talk about Chardonnay in the Santa Rita Hills, we're also talking about, in some cases, um, ripening up acidity right? And that sounds kind of weird, but you can have too much acid in fruit, and wine. And um, in Chardonnay, in this kind of a climate, it really takes a while for the, for the acid to ripen up. In other words, as a berry is accumulating sugar, it's losing acidity. But in this case, there's some clones here where they don't lose enough acidity. So this, the acid is so strong. And if if, to be honest, if my whole vineyard was planted to one of these clones that I'm referring to, then someone could make the argument that maybe we have the wrong varietal planted in this area because it's just too much, right? Now, having said that, you know, I use those clones to really give the backbone of this of this wine. I have other clones that do ripen up well. Um, in a cold climate. In other words, they do accumulate the flavor development, the sugar, and they do ripen up the acidity, so they lose enough acid to be picked kind of perfectly ripe. Um, having said that, the style of this wine, it, it is a bit Chablisian, and it is a bit, you know, has some qualities of Merceau in the fact that people can use those as reference points, but by no means am I trying to be Chablis or am I trying to be Burgundian in, in any in any form? I'm proud, I'm born and raised in California, I own land in California, I farm in California, um, I'm a winemaker in California, so I'm proud of that. And I think that we should all be, I think California wines um, are tremendous and I think we should all have a little bit more pride in, in what we're doing here and stop this idea of people trying to be you know, Burgundian or trying to be, you know, Chablis where we can have similar goals. We can have, you know, this idea of making a complex, balanced wine with lots of acid, no doubt. Um, so having said that, this is a different style of Chardonnay. It's not um, a big, juicy, buttery, like you mentioned from the 90s. Um, but most of those wines that, that you reference there, they, they come from a warm or hot climate. You know, Mm -hmm. when you when you have Chardonnay in a cold climate, you get this, you get minerality, you get especially from Santa Rita Hills, you get this oceanic like salty brininess, Um, especially when you don't use any new wood. You get to see this, this, these um, exact um, characteristics very clearly. Um, You've got tons of acidity. Right. Talked about that with ripening lots of acid, So fresh, bright on the mouth. Um, and then you get this luscious fruit, which is so unique. For me, you know, the fruit component here is uh, pineapple and citrus, like lemon, lime blossom, but you also get the acid that wraps around that fruit, right? So it's tight, it's not like this globby fruit. There's richness of fruit from the low yields, these vines that are struggling and producing a small amount of concentrated fruit. But then this acid wraps around it. So on the mouth, you get this kind of yin and yang. You get this luscious fruit, but then bright zingy acidity. And then you get the lingering effect. You get this long-lasting finish, which is really the beauty of all wine, I think, is that is the texture. And uh in this wine, I think you you it's kind of like a, a juxtaposition, right? You have this this kind of minerality and this really unique saltiness with these white flowers, you know, by the way, you don't normally describe Chardonnay like that, right? But then you put it in your mouth and you get luscious fruit with zingy acid. You're like, whoa, what is this? And so <clears throat> this wine is really, I and mean, we've made wine in the style, you know, since day one. But the, but the wine is, has really got people to rethink, you know, how they think about California Chardonnay. And that's fun you know, that's that's really where the magic is, is turning people's heads, you know, seeing the light bulb go off, go, whoa, I can't believe this is Chardonnay. And ironically, it, it couldn't be any more Chardonnay, right? Because it doesn't have yeah. any of the, <laughs> the mallow or any of the butter. Or it doesn't get stirred. You know, those are all techniques that you do to embellish things where where for us, it's all about keeping it as pure as possible. So when you smell and taste this wine, it is exactly 100% Chardonnay before it can go in all these different directions
0: yeah and that was a great over to uh, overview of those two uh let's just quickly touch on some of the other pinots we talked about sandy's just briefly but sandy's um you have the anna's block uh, block m and terraces
1: yeah those are all um, block specific wines so mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's already vineyard designated. Everything we do is Melville Vineyard. But then within our vineyard, we have these little sweet spots for different reasons. Most uh-huh. of the time it's, it's soil driven. Some of it could be clonal driven, but, but they're all special, right? Um, and so these sweet spots have identified themselves over time. And, um, and so we do treat them a little bit differently in the vineyard. And then we do treat them a little bit differently in the cellar. But, but they're just really dif- different interpretations of the same grape, um, on the same piece of land and the same vintage, right? Treated a little bit differently, but when you line them all up together, they are all quite different, both aromatically and structurally. Um, flavor-wise as well, too, because of the different soil type um, that they're grown in. So they're fun to kind of really check out. For people that are really geeky about it, It's, it's um, they're different styles. I think all of them... To be fair, all of them are still in that kind of savory, sweet um, balancing act. And then all of them do, um, you know, have this, what I love about Pinot Noir, which is this grace, the beauty, the, the mystery, the intrigue, this kind of delicate, you know, balance of lifted aromatics with with bright acidity and fruit concentration and then assertive tannins you know when I think of Pinot Noir I think of like a ballerina you know something that's grace beautiful graceful not something someone who's beautiful and graceful and has strength as well you know and and that's the magic of Pinot I think
0: Yeah, and so let's uh, tell people how they can buy the wines. Again, the website here, you can shop right on the website. Um, You also have, uh, you know, tell people how they can go and visit you guys. Uh, Pre-COVID, I actually visited the downtown tasting room outpost, which was a lovely place, Um, really beautiful one. I I remember I I went to like, I don't know, five, six, seven, or eight, a handful, five to ten, uh, different places. And the Melville one was uh, was probably on the top of my list. I had a, a great time there. It was just really comfortable and inviting. And the staff uh, the staff was great. I remember t- tasting through some of the Pinots. And as you mentioned, um, being able to, t- I definitely was able at the time, and I was still kind of new- newer to wine. This was maybe five, six years ago. Um, something like that, or four or five years ago, uh, being able to really taste the difference, the differences of your pinots. I think I tasted through three or four and, um, and that was just a really fun experience to be able to kind of line them up and, and go through them like that, to be able to pick out the differences between fruit, acidity and things, but tell people how they can interact with you guys.
1: Um, So like you said, the website is great. Um, And then, like you said, we got that taste room in Santa Barbara. The winery is about an hour north of Santa Barbara. Um, uh, the winery is, I think, you know, the best place to visit just because the winery is set in the middle of a vineyard. We have all this beautiful outdoor teak furniture with umbrellas on the lawn. You get table service. But you get to sit in the beauty and the magic of Santa Rita Hills. You get to smell the ocean. You get to see the vines grow. You can literally turn left, go straight, turn right, um, and within, you know, 25 steps, you're in the vineyard. Um, so there's there's that experience. Uh, we're, we're open in both locations every day. There's also the wine club. You know, the wine club is, if you're a real big fan and you really love kind of what we're doing, even on a micro lot basis, like we, we bottle up, you know, 16 to 18 different wines here and Probably five or six of them are in such small quantities that they're only available through the wine club. So if you're interested in the philosophy and you love our wines, you know, that's something definitely to look into because now you have access to wines that you can't get anywhere else. Um, And then, you know, look us up in your in your local markets, too. We we have uh, distribution, um, you know, active distribution in, you know, 15 to 20 different states Um, probably most of the states that you would think of. And then we, you know, I don't know how how far your podcast goes, but we are in Japan and Sweden and Germany and Canada and a few other countries as well. Oh, and then also our our social media too, I must add, because that is kind of something we've been getting very active on the last couple of years, especially during COVID. Um, But our Instagram feed and our Facebook, um, definitely look us up and follow us there because we're always doing something fun and, stupid, crazy on Instagram. Um, but I think it's entertaining and educational at the same time.
0: Great. Well, we'll link those in the show notes. Chad, this cool. was a lot of fun. really appreciate you coming on. Last question, to, just to have a little fun. We always ask, uh, what do you reach for? What are you drinking when you're not drinking wine? It doesn't have to be alcoholic, but it could be. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's funny. I automatically assumed alcoholic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know,
1: I love I love beer. I love pilsners. I love clean, um, Mm -hmm. bright, uh, really well-made pilsners or lagers. Um, but, um, uh, I also, you know, it's funny because I have a, uh, I have two kids, like I mentioned earlier, but my 14 year old boy, Caden, um, he loves, um, Arnold Palmer's, you know, that, that kind of, uh, Acidic tannic tea, a combo with this sweet lemonade. <laughs> so, we bought a yeah. big jug of it the other day and actually hit that hard yesterday because it was so hot. And, um, I was digging a hole and I was just sweating my butt off. So, I went for that the Arnold Palmer. That's a great non alcoholic, too. <laughs>
0: okay, well, it gives it gives uh people some uh some ideas out there. Um, I remember when I was young, I loved the smell of coffee, and but I hated the taste. And, I, and so oh, right. I, I always knew, like, okay, later on, I'm, I'm going to probably appreciate this because I just really love the smell. So maybe your son eventually, it sounds like he kind of has the palate for, for the type of wines that you make. So maybe in another decade or however long, he'll be able to appreciate it more. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chad. Uh, this has been Bye. a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks, Ryan.
1: I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.